Now the officials of this foreign land came on their bellies to kiss the earth to the power of his majesty to beg breath for their nostrils. From the victory inscription of Tutmos III over the Canaanite coalition of Megiddo, 15th century BCE. Welcome to A History of the Jewish People, Episode 1, A Land of Milk and Honey. In this episode, we will pave the way for the Israelites to enter our story by first discussing who and what came before them. In other words, we're talking about everything but the Jewish people. As we will see, the first ever mention of the Israelites came at the end of the 13th century BCE. But by then, the Near East was already amazingly ancient. So let's take some time to explore the Levant and see the vibrant world of the late Bronze Age. If you want to follow along, you can go to our website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com, where I've posted maps along with the episode. So I know I said we're not going to be talking about the Israelites this episode, but we will at least be talking about the land of Israel and the Canaanites who originally lived there. But not quite yet. We'll actually start by talking about Egypt. Why? because I want to. More seriously though, it's impossible to talk about the late Bronze Age without discussing Egypt. Egypt's history, like that of the rest of the Near East, is incredibly old and rich. In ancient times, Egyptian history was classified into 30 dynasties and, despite its problems, this system remains in place today. The first dynasty of Egypt ruled over 5,000 years ago. By the fourth dynasty in the 27th century BCE, kings were already building massive pyramids and the Great Sphinx. This was the first golden age in Egypt, and has become known to history as the Old Kingdom. After a few hundred years, centralized power broke down, and Egypt became disunited. Then some guy had the great idea to put it back together again, and boom, we get the Middle Kingdom. A few centuries after that came another period of disunity. Then, in the 16th century BCE, Egypt reunited and began a renaissance known to history as the New Kingdom. This golden age, lasting about 500 years, blessed modern Egypt's tourism industry with the treasures of Tutankhamun and the Temple of Karnak. It also blessed the Canaanites with a bunch of foreigners with swords knocking at their doors. As we will see, foreigners with swords will be a bit of a theme in this podcast. So let's now pivot and talk about these Canaanites. To begin with, the Canaanites, much like the ancient Greeks or Mayans, were never a unified state. A Canaanite would have actually considered themselves a citizen of Byblos or Ugarit, or any other of the numerous city-states of the Levant. What connected these disparate polities, however, was culture. Most importantly, the Canaanites all spoke dialects of the Northwest Semitic language. Hebrew and Aramaic will both be Northwest Semitic languages, with Arabic being a closely related cousin. The Semitic languages are also distantly related to the Egyptian language, which is unrelated to Egyptian Arabic. These languages together make up the Afro-Semitic family. These languages are completely distinct from the Indo-European languages spoken by the Hittites, the Greeks, and by you and me. The Canaanites also had their own cast of deities. Three of them will be important to our story, so keep them in mind. 
First and foremost was the king of the gods, El. There's actually a non-zero chance that this Canaanite god's name makes a cameo in your own. Biblical names like Elizabeth, Nathaniel, Samuel, and Elijah all contain the name El, as do many others. We'll cover why this is the case in coming episodes. The king of the gods also had a queen of similar importance. Asherah was an archetypical fertility goddess, and was thought to be the mother of many other gods. Finally, Baal was a powerful storm god in the Canaanite pantheon. The Egyptians linked him with their own god Set, and even worshipped him in his own right during the New Kingdom. All three of these deities will appear for centuries to come, so keep an eye out for them as we discuss the religion of the early Jewish people. Spoiler alert, early Judaism will look quite a bit Canaanite. Egyptian rule is a mixed bag for the Canaanites. On the one hand, a powerful Egyptian economy to the south ensured that trade flowed through the Levant. Ships traveled counterclockwise around the eastern Mediterranean and would stop at Canaanite ports while sailing north from Egypt. Overland, caravans traveling to or from Mesopotamia and beyond would also be funneled into the Levant. Don't imagine camels yet in these caravans, however. That animal is still a few centuries away from arriving in the Near East. Culture and technology also flowed along these trade routes. The Canaanites likely learned chariotry from their northern neighbors, and the Egyptians likewise adopted technology from the Canaanites. Writing was also brought to the Canaanites by the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians. Ugaritic, the dialect spoken by the people of Ugarit, was written in simplified cuneiform, while the first alphabet would later be developed by Canaanites using a shortened list of hieroglyphic signs. Egyptian and Mesopotamian art also became influential in the Levant. In the Late Bronze Age, Canaanite coffins often appear like clay versions of Egyptian sarcophagi. Another benefit Egypt provided was some protection to its vassals. As we will later see, the Assyrians and Babylonians tended to screw around with their subjects, to put it lightly, and the Egyptians were generally able to resist the temptation to import entire conquered populations. You know the feeling, right? On the other hand, the Egyptians sometimes didn't really care which Canaanites were in charge, so Canaanite cities did have to contend with their neighbors. A treasure trove of international correspondence known as the Amarna Letters contains some fascinating information about the ancient politics of the region. Ribhadi, for example, was the ruler of Byblos, and kept whining to the Egyptians because his neighbors were bullying him and Egypt wasn't sending aid. Less comically, his story ended when he was overthrown and was either killed or sent into exile. This international competition backstabbing seems to have been common in Canaan in the late Bronze Age. The average Canaanite also probably did not benefit much from Egyptian hegemony. Much like the Greeks, the Canaanites largely organized their cities around palace economies. Palaces, though they may have served as the residence for their ruler, also were the political and economic hub of every city. Most trade was conducted in the palace on behalf of the elites as a whole. This monopoly was held by the urban upper class, and few of its benefits reached the rural farming majority. Regardless, the benefits and disadvantages of Egyptian rule did not really matter for the Canaanites, since they had no choice in the matter. Cities in Syria on the border could defect to the Hittites or the Mitanni, Egypt's rivals, but achieving independence was rarely possible. 
Revolts occurred infrequently, and when they did, the Egyptians made sure to crush them quickly. As we heard in the intro quote, the first and only dangerous revolt against Egyptian rule came in the mid-15th century BCE, when Canaanite princes banded together in Megiddo to resist Egyptian dominance. So let's use this campaign as an opportunity to follow Pharaoh's army and explore the land of Israel. Pharaoh's army began its march at the city of Charu at the edge of the Nile Delta. This was the classic staging post for northern expeditions because it also happens to mark the end of the way of Horus, the road extending along the Mediterranean coast of Sinai. Then, in April of 1457 BCE, probably, Thutmose III and his army depart on campaign. The march through the Sinai Desert, though along the coast, would have been hot and uncomfortable. The Egyptian soldiers, though exposed to the harsh sun, would not have been thirsty, however, as wells had been dug at regular intervals along the route. After ten days of marching, the soldiers arrived in Gaza. Incidentally, the victory inscription of Thutmose III is the first ever attestation of the name Gaza, though the city had existed for much longer and, of course, still exists today. Thutmose would not have cared about this detail, but he and his soldiers would have noticed a shift in the climate. The Sinai and Negev deserts, which are part of the same strip of desert as the enormous Sahara, give way to a steppe region here. Though it is far from temperate, this region gets slightly more rain and lower temperatures than the desert to the south. There are a few other changes to the landscape as well. To start, around Gaza, the coastline bends to run north-south. This stretch of the Mediterranean continues almost uninterrupted for a few hundred miles up the entirety of the Levant. Another new feature is the mountain range that appears in the east. These are the Judean mountains, which we'll explore later. After stopping in Gaza, the army continued north along the coast. Since it was late April or the beginning of May by this point, the Mediterranean rainy season would have just ended. The coastal plains are crisscrossed with wadis, or riverbeds, running from the mountains of the east to the sea in the west. Usually these wadis would be dry, but in the winter rainy season, they could flood and make travel difficult. A few days later, the Egyptian army would have arrived about 100 miles to the north of Gaza. Here, the mountains we encountered earlier bend to the coast in a range known as Mount Carmel. Megiddo lay just to the east of these mountains, so Tutmos had to make a decision of how to reach his destination. According to his victory inscription, the pharaoh was presented with three wadis that could convey his army through the mountains. Two of these wadis, which bent to the north and the south, would have been easy but long marches. The third option was to march through the Wadi Ara, a narrow 12-mile pass, which would be dangerous but swift. Like all good generals, Tutmose chose the difficult but rewarding option. Incidentally, an even greater number of bad generals make similar choices, but their choices are, of course, irredeemable blunders destined to fail. For Tutmose, however, the gamble paid off. His army emerged right outside the walls of Megiddo and was able to gain favorable positioning before attacking the Canaanite coalition the next day. Although both sides had roughly even numbers of troops, the Egyptians won a sweeping victory and were only prevented from taking the city immediately because they began looting the enemy prematurely.
The Egyptians would eventually capture Megiddo, but only after a month's long siege. And not without good reason. At the time, Megiddo would have been an impressive and stereotypically Canaanite city. It had tall brick walls and stood on a tell, or a city mount. The Levant is full of hills, so almost all Canaanite cities were built on tells for the defensive advantages. Inside the walls, Megiddo was dominated by a palace and a cluster of smaller temples, a few of which would have been dedicated to El, Asherah, and or Baal. We'll now leave Tutmos and his army and take a look at the rest of Palestine during the Late Bronze Age. To begin, most of the subjects of the princes of Megiddo would have lived beneath the city in the fertile Jezreel Valley. For most of the Levant, tall mountain ranges hugged the coast, but the Jezreel Valley is a rare interruption to these mountains. Farmers here would have mostly produced wheat during the Late Bronze Age, but may have also grown the grapes and the olives, which are hallmarks of the Mediterranean diet. To the south of the Jezreel Valley is the hill country of Samaria. Later in our story, this will become the heartland of the Kingdom of Israel. In the Late Bronze Age, however, it is a sparsely populated backwater. In the east, the Jezreel Valley morphs into the Beishan Valley, which, predictably, was home to the city of Beishan. This city, likewise built on a tell, was an important regional center in the Egyptian Empire, but is otherwise not particularly noteworthy. Just beyond Beishan, however, is something far more important, the Jordan River. When it comes to the Jordan River, size really doesn't matter. Here in New York, we have the Hudson River, and while it may not be the best for swimming, it is impressive. Near me, the Hudson is over 3,000 feet wide, though it can reach over three miles wide upriver. The Jordan River, on the other hand, maxes out at a whopping 60 feet. On average, it's just 33 feet wide and a bit over six feet deep. What's more impressive is its geology. I know, cue the groans, no one likes geology. But what makes the Jordan River unique is that it runs from about 600 feet below sea level in the Sea of Galilee, down south to 1,400 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. That's because the Jordan River is nestled between the African and Arabian plates, which don't quite fit together. The Arabian plate is moving at a fraction of a snail's pace, that is to say, incredibly fast by geological standards. More specifically, it's moving northeast at just over a centimeter a year, and that motion has caused a rift to form on its border with the African plate. This rift continues all the way along the edge of the African plate to create the Great Rift Valley, of which the Jordan River is the northernmost component. I mentioned before the mountains that run north to south throughout the Levant. Well, here these mountains cast a rain shadow over the entire Jordan River Valley, making the region a barely hospitable desert. To the south, the mountains are taller and the valley is lower, so the shift in climate is sudden and dramatic. In the north, both geographical features are slightly less extreme, creating a more mild steppe environment. Let's take a peek up north before continuing south. Just upstream, the Jordan River emerges from the Sea of Galilee, which would have been larger in the Late Bronze Age than it currently is today. Despite the name Sea of Galilee, it's actually a freshwater lake, 
and makes for quite a pleasant swim if you're in the area. Around the Sea of Galilee are basically the same kinds of hills that are abundant throughout Palestine. Chazor was the only notable city in the region in the late Bronze Age, and supported a population around 45,000, making it the largest city in Canaan at the time. To give that number some context, it's likely that the entire highlands region of Palestine supported about 5,000 inhabitants, just a tenth of the population of Chazor. Just to the north of the Galilee region rise the Lebanese mountains, much taller and more formidable than their southern cousins. To the west of these mountains were the Phoenician city-states of Acre, Tyre, Sidon, Beirut, and Byblos, all of which were more powerful than the cities of Palestine. To the east of the Lebanese mountains, in modern-day Syria, was, and still is, Damascus. But that's not our concern, at least not yet. We'll go back down south to the Jordan River Valley. As it flows southward, the Jordan River reaches record lows. On the west bank lies the lowest city, and one of the oldest in the world, Jericho. One stone tower excavated in Jericho has been dated to around 8000 BCE, which is incredibly ancient even by the standards of the Levant. Just south of Jericho, then, the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, the lowest place on Earth, at 1400 feet below sea level. The valley is wide at the Dead Sea, with the Judean mountains being about 20 miles to the west. Again, the temperate mountains block almost all rain from following the Jordan Rift Valley, which is a complete desert by this point. By now, we've almost completed a full loop around the heartland of Palestine, traveling north along the coast, winding our way east over the Carmel Mountains and through the Jezreel Valley, and floating south past Samaria along the Jordan River. So now we'll cut back west to complete this loop, taking a look at the Judean Hills before returning to the coast. Jerusalem was probably the only notable city in Judea in the late Bronze Age. To even call it a city probably would be stretching the truth. You see, the highlands of both Judea in the south and Samaria to the north were very sparsely populated in this period, with at most a few thousand permanent inhabitants scattered across 30-odd villages. Some of the inhabitants of these hills would likely have been nomadic, with pastoralism being the dominant means of subsistence in the highlands. Some of these groups would have traded with their settled neighbors, while others like the Apiru and the Shasu raided agricultural settlements in stateless bands. Either way, these pastoralists, like most nomadic groups, were not self-sufficient, relying on settled populations for manufactured goods and grains. Beyond Jerusalem and these wandering groups of nomads, a traveler would have encountered very few people in the highlands. The Bible sometimes refers to Palestine as a land of milk and honey, but the picture archaeology gives us of the late Bronze Age highlands is far from that of a fertile oasis in the mountains. It's difficult to pin down the exact population of Palestine as a whole during the late Bronze Age, but it is almost certainly in the range of hundreds of thousands. One study I read estimated a total of up to 600,000 inhabitants, while another posited a figure of 150,000 for the Early Bronze Age. A quadrupling of the population from the Early to Late Bronze Ages seems implausible, so I'd put my money on a population closer to 200,000, if I had to guess. These numbers, however, belie the emptiness of the so-called land of milk and honey, 
The highlands were home to a small fraction of these hundreds of thousands of people during the Late Bronze Age. The land had great potential, and earlier in history, hosted nearly half of all inhabitants of Palestine. But the highlands were also very dependent on seasonal rainfall, making life full of uncertainty. For whatever reason, during the Late Bronze Age, most Canaanites chose to settle or wander in the more stable lowlands. So with that, we'll head back down to those lowlands. The solid limestone Judean mountains can reach up to 3,000 feet at their tallest peaks. But towards the coast, the limestone gives way to a stretch of chalky foothills known as the Shvilah. Those hills then gradually flatten into the temperate coastal plains, where we would once again find the city of Gaza. And that completes our tour around the land of Israel. The geography is integral to the story of the early Jewish people. The kingdom of Judah, for example, will emerge out of the rough Judean mountains, while the kingdom of Israel will grow powerful in the more temperate hills of Samaria. Judah will also remain more isolated than the kingdom of Israel, which will control more of the trade routes than its southern counterpart. The Philistines, a seafaring people and the classic rival of the Israelites, will settle in the coastal lowlands. To the north, the Phoenicians will grow fabulously wealthy in their coastal strongholds, and their cultural golden age will give birth to the first alphabets. But for all that to happen, the world of the Late Bronze Age, dominated by Egypt and the Hittites, would have to change dramatically. We'll cover the collapse of the Bronze Age world order and also introduce the Israelites to our story next episode. Until then, if you want to get in touch, you can reach us at historyofthejewishpeople at gmail.com, or you can find us at our bare bones website, historyofthejewishpeople.wordpress.com, where you can find maps and sources associated with this episode. The music for this episode was provided, as always, by the fantastic Jacob Shaw. And finally, thank you all for listening, and I hope you tune in next time for episode two, Free at Last. (laughs) 